Uh, hello, and welcome to another episode of Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Trey. In what would be the final few years of his writing career, William Shakespeare produced a series of plays that seemed to defy easy categorization. These works, which included Pericles, Cymbeline, and The Winter's Tale, comfortably fit neither in the definition of comedy nor tragedy, and have instead been retroactively labelled his romance plays. Arguably the finest of these works, the play often referred to, whether apocryphally or no, as the final script Shakespeare wrote on his own, is The Tempest. An elusive, imaginative tale of shipwreck and magic, The Tempest is at once wildly experimental and curiously traditional. It grapples with themes of revenge, colonialism, enslavement, forgiveness, growth, and artistic impulse. Indeed, one of the play's great wonders is that, like the magician Prospero at the play's centre, it seems capable of toying with its viewers' perceptions, reflecting back at them whatever themes they wish to draw from its exquisite poetry. To unpack the myriad interpretations that can be drawn from this wondrous play, I'm joined today by fellow Campion College lecturer, Dr. Jeremy Bell. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for joining me for this. This I, I have to admit, The Tempest is one of my favourite plays. So if at any point I just give over to gushing wildly about how phenomenal it is, maybe just kind of give me a smack upside the head and remind, <laughs> remind me that we're actually meant to be having a discourse rather than me just ranting about my love for this play... Uh, is it that for you? I mean, we'll, we'll get into the, the, the plot and the narrative and what it's saying and uh, later, but is this one of your favourites or is it just fascinating? It's... It is one of my favourites, and probably the main reason for that is because it was the first play of his that I really got to know well. And the reason for that is because it was the first play of his that I actually acted in when I was 15. Yep, yeah, I was 15, and... I acted the part of Caliban in a um, school production. And I continue to be infuriatingly jealous of you. So now you've played Hamlet and you've played Caliban. These are two of my favourite characters. What was... <laughs> I mean, again, we can unpack this in more detail later on, but what was that like to, to perform in this production? It was great fun. I mean, Caliban's a very fun role um, mm. in all sorts of ways. Gosh, I'm casting my mind back. I actually enjoyed the production itself as well, quite apart from my own part in it. I thought that um, it was a very beautiful production. The director, I think, made some very good choices for how he wanted to stage it, and also to um, and, and also the musical choices he made, I think, were very good. He made quite a lot of use of Mozart's magic flute music from that, which does bear comparison in some ways with The Tempest. Apparently, I could be wrong about this, or maybe misremembering, but I think Mozart at one time even considered doing an opera of The Tempest. In any case, but in in the opera, the figure of Sarastro is in some ways quite similar to the figure of Prospero. Similarly ambiguous, I might say, actually. Sort of a hero in a way, and yet a ratbag in another way. <laughs> so in, anyway, but so one way or the other, the music complemented the, um, the staging very well. Let's let's talk in broad brushstrokes about what the, the play proposes to be i think what it actually goes on to be might be uh, something different but how would you describe the narrative okay prospero is the former duke of milan in the play it's supposed to be pronounced milan this was drummed into us right at the beginning of the right. performance <laughs> i did but anyway um i don't think i've ever said it that way no indeed but i think if you look at the scansion it does have to be anyway so prospero former duke of milan or milan living now on an island, I'm fairly sure the island is never given any sort of name, it's just a, a desert island out who knows where, and he's living there with 
his only daughter, and with their slave, Caliban, the part I played, I'll say a bit more about him in a moment, and also with Ariel, a sprite, a spirit, and various other spirits that are in Prospero's employ, so to speak. Um, Prospero is a magician, and the play begins with the Tempest that gives the play its title, in which a ship is shipwrecked. And as we find out later, this Tempest has been orchestrated by Prospero himself. And the point of it, at least partly, is he wants revenge on the man who drove him from Venice, leading to his apparently permanent exile on this island. And this man was none other than his own brother, Antonio. Antonio is on this ship together with a number of others, including a man named Gonzago, who we find out was, in fact, a friend of Prospero's, is still, in a way, a friend of Prospero's. He actually aided Prospero in a way that's not made entirely clear. And oh, well, it said, isn't he, he gave Miranda and Prospero provisions and, and kind of made yes, sure they weren't going to die when they were something cast like off that. into the ocean? I mean, I, I might say, we, we can come back to this too, I, my own thought is that Prospero's retrospective description of the circumstances in which they were driven out of Venice prompts a number of questions about just exactly what was going on. But mm. anyway. Um, no, I think absolutely the reliability of Prospero's Yes, own, precisely. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, and so his intention does seem very much to be revenge, um, mm. to begin with at least. Now, at the same time, one of the other characters on this ship is the son of the King of Naples. And as we find out, the King of Naples had also in some way aided Antonio in expelling Prospero and taking the dukedom of Milan for himself. So Prospero wants revenge on him too. But this, again, is difficult to be clear about, whether this is his intention or not. His daughter Miranda ends up meeting and falling in love with this son of the King of Naples. And by the play's end, there's been a kind of general reconciliation. Prospero has decided, OK, I'm not going to take revenge. It's not made clear what form that revenge would have taken, actually. But OK, instead we're all going to go back home to Italy. I'm going to resume as Duke of Milan. I'm going to give up magic, and that's something we must talk about. Why does he give up magic? But I'm going to do that. (laughs) My daughter is going to marry the Prince of Naples, and so one day she'll be the Queen of Naples. I'm reconciled with my brother and with the King of Naples. I think that reconciliation is also something we're going to have to come back to. It is. Yes, the scene in which two of the villains say nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, virtually nothing at all. And then, of course, I, I haven't yet said much about Caliban. Um, he's someone, it turns out, was living on the island when Prospero and Miranda first arrived. And to begin with, he wasn't enslaved by them. By Prospero's account, which Caliban doesn't precisely contradict, Caliban had attempted to violate the honour of Miranda to rape her. And as a result of that, Prospero enslaved him. And Caliban meets up purely by chance with two comic relief characters, in the sense, who are also on the um, the shipwrecked boat and who this get is separated. the counter-court of Trinculo and Stefano. That's right, and exactly. And these are the only other human beings, apart from his own dead mother, Sigurax, and Prosper and Miranda, that he's ever met. And they're bearing alcohol. Um, they actually come on, at least Stefano does, wildly drunk and remain so, and offers Caliban some of his alcohol. And so Caliban gets it into his head quite quickly, these are gods, these are divine <laughs> beings, I'm going to worship them. And moreover, they can help me to escape from this tyrannical master of mine. So he enlists their aid in a comically absurd plot to kill Prospero and, well, 
I don't actually even remember what's supposed to happen apart from that. But uh, the the stake well, that kill- Stefano and the stake Stefano is supposed to have in is that he can then marry Miranda. Yes, I, I mean, and I think we will talk about that as well because it's it's quite disturbing. He says you'll kill Prospero. These two comic characters, and for the majority of their their sort of B storyline, they are ridiculous, and there's confusion. Oh, is that a fish? And all oh, this very silliness. Um, that that plays out. However, that story gets quite dark indeed when, as you said, Caliban offers them the island and says, you just have to kill this guy and then you can, against her will, basically marry, so uh, effectively rape again, Mm. uh, Miranda by... uh, She will be your queen. It's it's a pretty disturbing connotation that that that, that story takes on by, by virtue of Caliban... As you said, giving over to these new gods, these new lords mm. that he, he thinks have, have turned up, that can rescue him from what he claims is unwilling bondage or servitude to Prospero. That He'll trade that off to these two drunken idiots. Indeed. And of course the plot comes to nothing. Prospero mm. effortlessly foils it with the help of um, his magical servants or slaves. Actually, I suppose there too, the, the very last thing we should mention, um, because it is very important, as a result of deciding to leave the island and all the rest of it, Prospero, and, and abjuring magic, Prospero frees his chief servant, Ariel. Who has um, been pleading for freedom throughout the entire play. Indeed, yeah. Well, and has apparently been promised it. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly bears no particular love to Prospero. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, so you, you would see it that way, that, that, that Ariel... Because I, I always got the sense that, that Ariel was, was loving towards Prospero, but did resent that... that um, containment that that restraint that uh, um, being loyal to Prospero represented you saw it more as just this is a a wild creature spirit whatever who just desires to be free and has no particular I I don't think I mean there's there's the passage where um towards the end Ariel is describing the condition of the um the survivors from the shipwreck um who have I think walked into a bog and and they're basically imprisoned there or something like that and and what he says I, I I won't get this exactly right I suppose but he says something like you know master if you if you saw them um oh, yeah. you 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 would feel pity for them in effect and he responds do you think so spirit and he says yes I would if I were human mm-hmm. I would it's actually quite pointed in a way um, it's I I think it's the entire uh, meat of of the story so i think we'll we'll come back to this repeatedly mm. but absolutely yeah i mean ariel asks prospero it's a striking moment um dost thou love me mm. master no um and that's the question and prospero says dearly my delicate ariel and again i mention that because i think it's all the more striking given that there's really not much evidence as far as i can see of reciprocation it's also I mean, I, I hope we're not getting sidetracked, but um, I think we are. But I, I, I well, think that's the. But I well, but I it, think that's the trade-off with this play. Sure, is yeah. that, uh, even though obviously our, our plot summary was quite uh, lengthy, when you actually strip it down, it's a very simple plot that takes place over the course of literally two hours. Like the stage time and the narrative time are effectively married together. Mm. It's the, the course of events. I think the, the play itself actually calls this out. It says like there are two glasses till. You know, uh, events shall be ripe. So it's like two hours until you know, the climax of the play is indicated at the beginning. So events take place in real time. It's like twenty-four on a magical island, and we we watch it uh, play out in a straightforward manner. And yet, there's so much going on thematically. There's so much backstory. There's so much sort of 
convoluted interrelationships of these characters that it's easy, I think, to get waylaid in, in the way mm. that we... And we'll continue to. Yep, over the course. I think it's interesting that this is the only place in the entire play where Prospero actually addresses another character and says that he loves them. He talks about loving Miranda, and, and mm-hmm. I think there's every reason to accept that. Yes, he does. He loves her dearly. But he never actually tells her that. And one reason why that is interesting, too, is because throughout the play, he never makes clear to Miranda what it is he's doing. Yeah. In a way, she really does become as much of a, a kind of pawn in his game as any of the characters that he's um, using magic on. In fact, he does use magic on her. He puts yeah. her into a magical sleep. Um, and I think, as you said, an unkind reading of his character within the play, and many such readings exist, would say that he absolutely, he, he needs to firm up his political power in returning to uh, Milan. And so, well, Milan, sorry. Uh, and, and so, yeah, he has to marry off his daughter to shore that up. So, uh, again, looked at cynically or unkindly, he's just doing what he needs to to make sure that his return home will be comfortable and assured of power. If that's I don't actually, buy that reading, by the sure. way. Sure, I mean, I, I would add, if that is, in fact, his initial goal, and I'm not convinced it is, mm-hmm. it becomes his goal by the end, but I don't think it's at all clear that that's the initial goal. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just finishing off you know, what I was saying a moment ago, he's complete, well, maybe not even completely, but he's fairly open with Ariel about everything that he's doing. Mm. And Ariel is also the only character to whom he actually says, I love you never says that to Miranda or to anyone else, and never tells anyone else what it is that he's doing. Yeah. And so, yes, he has this oddly close relationship with this strange spirit who at the end simply flies off into the ether never to return. And I think, you know, that, that in a way, that captures something very important about Prospero. Although... I absolutely agree, because uh, I, I think the reason that, that the people who have that unkind view of Prospero that he's this you know political manipulator that he sees all of the moves and that this is just one giant chess game and it should be noted that literally a chess game appears within it does, the story yes. with Miranda and, <laughs> and, and Ferdinand mm. arguably the two pawns that he has moved into place but but that that idea that he is this master manipulator uh, occurs because uh, as you said he never opens up to any of the characters we don't really get that much of a glimpse into his internal monologue and yet he seems to know where all of the characters are and what they're doing so the suggestion becomes that throughout the entire play he has this plan and he's just ticking off the boxes as they all unfold he started the tempest that kicked into action the entire plot he manipulated the character or he had Ariel, I should say, maneuver the characters to where he wanted them on the island so that he could almost like some magical saw film just kind of <laughs> torment them emotionally and, and psychologically while he waits for it all to be gathered together at, at the end, the climax of, of the play uh, in which his, his plan comes to fruition. The only moment when we get any idea of hesitation or alteration in his plans or his perception of those around him comes in that moment with Ariel. And, mm. and it seems to be motivated by Ariel. I think, of course, it, it would depend greatly on the performer who was presenting that character. But in my reading, I always find that it's been a revenge play up until that point. And you never explicitly have it stated that he wants to inflict actual physical harm on these people. But the conventions of this 
narrative are a revenge play. It's it's like Hamlet. It's like you know the revenge is tragedy by kid. It's it's um, or Spanish tragedy. I'm sorry, and uh, it's it's one of those revenge plays in which you have a protagonist who has been mistreated or who has some legitimate beef. And here come the flies into the spider's web and he's going to mess with them now and and destroy them. And it seems to be what he's kind of doing. He's playing with their minds until that moment when Ariel, a spirit who is not human, who should not have the capacity for empathy, says, you know, you would pity them. Mm. If you saw them the way that I did, uh, then then you would show mercy to them. You You would pity their plight. And as you said, Prospero uncharacteristically questions his actions and says, would you, spirit? I would if I were human. Mm-hmm. And I think the question then becomes, well, then what is Prospero? Is he no longer human? And it's almost like he has to emotionally snap back, uh, you know, self-assess uh, his, his actions and realize that, okay, perhaps he's pushed this revenge thing a little too far. Now he needs to regather himself and show some empathy. And it's from that moment that he can forgive, finally, his brother and Alonso and these people who have wronged him. Uh, and it almost doesn't matter if they accept his forgiveness or acknowledge it. It's, it's more about uh, a personal change within himself. That until that point, I, th- I don't think we've seen him capable of expressing or, or even comprehending within himself. I mean, why he changes his mind... If, indeed, you it, read it as a change of course, of mind. Yeah. I'm just looking up the scene. So, um, thus I think so, spirit, mind would serve were I human. And Prosper says, and mine shall... And then skip a little bit. Though with their high wrongs I am struck to the quick, yet with my nobler reason against my fury do I take part. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent, the sole drift of my purpose doth extend not a frown further. So, yes. Um, I mean, of course, we've touched on this briefly before anyway. It's not completely clear that they are penitent. No, I think Al- no, Alonso and, you know, is. I would, I would argue the King of that Naples. Antonio definitively is not. I mean, would you agree that Alonso is, though? Alonso most definitely is. Yes. Like, you get the mm. sense, even before he's aware that Prospero is, is around, that there are things in his life he has done that he regrets. Yes. It's almost like the, the taking of his son is some kind of punishment that the universe exactly. is like, no, that's pounding right. upon him for mm. his past misdeeds. Antonio, though, is... I read him as kind of an Iago figure. He he so delights, and, and not even like uh, Edmund in Lear, mm. who, who has that possibility for regret in his final moments. Uh, Antonio, like Iago, is just in it for the chaos. He doesn't care. It's not even about power for him. It's just like, I will, and he says this to Sebastian, I will teach you how to behave like me. You, know, mm. you I... I don't care about any of this crap. I just you know, like he's willing to kill people who are asleep. He's willing to sell out his brother. Uh, he, he's willing basically to uh, cross over any ethical line, seemingly for his own amusement. Mm. And in the end, you don't get any sense that he's happy that his brother lived through his machinations or that he regrets taking his position. As you said, he just falls to silence. It's almost like, well, it's irrelevant at that point what he thinks or says. It's more about Prospero's change of heart. Well, and the one interruption in the silence is when he pokes fun at Caliban and Trinculo and Stefano, who are brought on in a, in a sorry state. So, yes, I mean, I tend to agree with you. Yes, he, he is not penitent. And presumably, I mean, Prospero isn't a fool. He doesn't have any particular reason to think that Antonio is penitent. So... Yeah, that, that complicates it. Well, okay, they being penitent, 
he seems to make that the condition for his forswearing revenge, and yet yeah. it's a condition that is you know, not obviously fulfilled, which in turn prompts the question, well, maybe there is also another reason for his changing his mind. And here I would say, I suspect if there is, it has much more to do with Miranda yeah. and, um, and Ferdinand than anything else. I totally agree. And and I, I think that's what I was sort of clumsily trying to articulate earlier about the revenge narrative. Uh, is a, a revenge narrative is usually about this person has wronged me and they must have vengeance visited upon them. That's the, like the universe has to rectify itself by punishing them. What this play, I think, ingeniously does is it sets that up, but then it says, well, actually, the people who have wronged me are almost irrelevant because the change. The alteration that has to take place within the narrative uh, to find some kind of resolve isn't in punishing them. It's in accepting that harm that has been visited upon you and finding still the capacity for empathy within yourself to forgive those who have wronged you, even abstracted from whether or not they're remorseful at all. That ultimately doesn't matter in the end. It's about you discovering within yourself a possibility for that magic, dare mm. I say, of, of, of play, that, that magic capacity to find the best in humanity, to seek for the best within yourself and to see it in others, even if they don't reflect it as you would like them to. And and I think part of that does play into Miranda is like, she's the future. She's the promise of, of what is to come. And you get her, she looks upon in, in the final scene, this cast of scumbags and villains and drunkens and idiots and just it's the like menagerie of the worst of humanity and she looks upon them and famously says oh brave new world that has such people in it and it's the, there's a horrible irony that even prospero calls out is like yes it's new to thee mm. uh it's it's you don't know how dark and grim the world can be but the beauty of her optimism shouldn't be undermined by that naivete there's there is something i think hopeful and beautifully in that idealization that's seeing the best in people and that's that i think is is something that she imparts to prospero even though you know we don't get a monologue or a, or a dialogue confirming that but I, I think prospero has been so bound up like ariel was in the tree i'm just trying to pull everything together now i'm sorry but uh ariel was confined in a tree for a number of years i think that's an important uh, metaphor that, that goes on throughout this play prospero has been so tied up in his anger and his quest for vengeance and then this scenario and the, the the experience that he's seeing with his daughter and young love and this hope for the future allows him to kind of transform himself to let go of ariel to let go of all that he was hanging on to uh, and to find the possibility to transform himself that was a long rant i apologize no not a, not at all i mean i would add to it i would say what he what he gives up at the end in a way most fundamentally is the desire to control and by that mm. i mean the desire to control everything yeah and this is why i would say it's immediately after saying okay i will forgive them i won't take vengeance that he then also forswears magic there's been no indication up to that point that he has any intention of doing that i mean he, here i'll have to go on a bit of a rant i think where to start i mean i we i think we do have to ask at some point about prospero look setting aside the desire for revenge what was he after even before that why what is his magic fundamentally all about? Because he makes it clear in what he says to Miranda that he was already practising magic back in Milan. And I suppose, I mean, let's begin there. I think, yes, we both agree, we touched on it earlier, that Prospero's account of the expulsion from Milan has holes in it. Mm. 
And I think one of the simplest is, look, he seems to know a very great deal about this sinister plot to get rid of him. <laughs> Information that therefore he must have had when it was going on. Didn't he yeah. do something about it? Yeah. And particularly if he was already pursuing magic, couldn't he have very easily done something about it? Also, you know, he says to Miranda, look, you know, my people bore me great love, you know, so dear the love my people bore me. So he wasn't an unpopular or allegedly. So it seems he held all the cards. He had magic, he knew the plot was going on, he, he was popular with his people it still happened. And I think it really does prompt the suspicion maybe he was glad of it. Um, oh, really? You go that way? I okay. would actually... I mean, n- n- no, not glad of his brother's treachery, but glad, in a sense, to be given this opportunity to be spared the inconvenience of having to be a ruler. Because, yeah. I mean, as we, as we find out, he had already given a lot of the responsibility for ruling over to his he, brother because he was wrapped in secret studies. Yeah, he said that that, that stuff was boring to him. He had no interest in you mm. know, the affairs of state, so absolutely. Yes. And, and, and I would actually say, look, what, what he was doing there, in effect, was giving up what for him had become an imperfect exercise of power for the pursuit of perfect, absolute power, the power of the magician. And we get indications in his very last speech about the elves and groves, about just how extensive this power was, and it, it goes as far, he tells us, as raising people from the dead. And I think, yes, there is a very good case that what he's after at the end of the day is immortality power over absolutely everything. And of course, yeah, we've talked about the chessboard metaphor. I mean, he... All of the characters in the play seem to become, yes, pieces that he's simply manipulating. Mm. And at the end of the day, I, I would put this forward for consideration at least, he reaches the point of a kind of disillusionment with magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's partly connected to Miranda, but the way it comes out is in his most famous speech, which is so beautiful. This, this is after the, the feast that he arranges, or the, 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 the mock wedding, if you like, that he arranges for Miranda and Ferdinand, mm-hmm. um, where he suddenly becomes terribly upset because he remembers the foul conspiracy of the Beast Caliban. Now, first of all, why does he get upset? The conspiracy represents no threat to him at all. I would say he gets upset because it's a reminder that at the end of the day he does not control the human will. Um, And and that if he could, actually, it would be be self-defeating, for a reason I'll come to in a moment. Forgive me, I must read out this beautiful speech. Yes, be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits, and are melted into air, into thin air. And, like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And, like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. It's just the most exquisite writing. But I think it's so important to realise the point he's making. He's effectively saying, look, this wonderful thing that you've just seen, it looks like human beings or even gods doing things. It's not. It's all thin air taking on various different forms, one after the other, and it'll all fade away. And all of reality is like that, including, of course, ourselves. Mm. We are basically manipulable material. And I would say, that is, in a sense, the metaphysic that Prospero is compelled to embrace as long as he remains a magician. The magician who says, I can control everything because everything is just one of the elements, air or something else, that can be moulded as as I see fit, provided I know how to do it. And of course, if you actually take that seriously, you eventually say, well, I must be that too. Mm. In a sense, there's no me. (laughs) There's no will of mine. There's just, again, more matter being manipulated by goodness knows what. 
And if we go back again to Miranda, for me, one of the crucial scenes in the play, it's actually literally the central scene, in the sense that you know, you've got exactly an equal number of scenes on either side of it. Act 3, scene 3, with between Miranda and Ferdinand. Ferdinand has been enslaved by Prospero, and Miranda has been ordered by Prospero not to talk to Ferdinand, and in particular not to reveal her name. Because she says this, oh, Father, I have broken my head. Because she does tell him, of course. And unbeknownst to her, Prospero is watching this whole thing. Yeah. Not intervening. Yeah. And after it's all over, when you know, they've effectively said, yes, I, you know, we love each other or whatever else, Prospero is left alone for a moment and he says, so glad of this is them I cannot be, and yet my rejo- who are surprised with all, and yet my rejoicing at nothing can be greater. Again, it's a gorgeous line. Mm. But it's an admission. Look, precisely because my daughter has gone against my will... She's defied me. I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. a human being with her own will. She loves this young man, and therefore, of course, she should have defied me. And so, yeah, the magician in him wants to control. The loving father in him recognises, no, I can't. Yeah. And at the end, yes, he abjures magic, abjures the desire to control, and you know, rejoins the human race, I think. Yeah, I think that's beautiful, and that's what I was awkwardly trying to argue before, is I think you're absolutely right. His, his studies, his obsession with magic, this pursuit of knowledge that everyone else is uncomfortable with, alienates him from everybody else because it becomes completely insular, as you said. It's this self-involved magic that is completely indulgent to yes. to himself mm. at the sacrifice of everything his certainly his occupation but it seems also his family i mean his his brother was the one who betrayed him it's yes. uh, you know mm. he has this love for miranda but it's questionable how good of a father he could have possibly been to her and i, I think that the play does follow that through is that he's reached a point where magic represents an alienation from the, his fellow man, which, again, is why I think that moment of empathy that Ariel prompts him to feel, unknowingly, but, but through their dialogue, motivates in him this desire to return to humanity, to give up this isolating, mm. you know, singular power, and to feel, once again, these bonds with uh, his fellow man, which, again, you know, his, his daughter has allowed him to feel. So I think seeking out the metaphysical in the magic in this play, uh, understanding the way in which that plays upon him is crucial, I also do want to do the torturous, obnoxious thing of going from the metaphysical to the metatextual because I don't, <laughs> I okay. don't think uh, there, there is an impulse. I think, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is one of, if not the final play that that Shakespeare. It's understood uh, that Shakespeare is said to have written on his own. Mm. Again, he collaborated with other uh, writers for, for a couple of other plays. But The Tempest is usually considered the last that he wrote by himself. And it's almost impossible to not see the magic that Prospero wields and Prospero himself as a reflection of the theatre and of Shakespeare as poet, playwright. Uh, you know, the, the I will drown my book and I will break my stuff. It's like, mm. I'll throw away my pen and paper. In the exquisite speech that, that you just referenced, you have as, you know... The Great Globe. Yeah. Yes. Our mm. revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold mm. you, were all spirits and are melted into the air, into the thin air. And as you said, yeah, the reference to the globe. And of course, the exquisite epilogue in which the character of Prospero actually undoes himself in front of the audience, which I am mm. going to be obnoxious and, and read because <laughs> no, please. I find it 
incredible. So at this point in the play, the narrative is wrapped up. Again, uh, Ariel has been freed. Prospero is heading home, presumably to take up his dukedom again or uh, to return to humanity, whatever whatever you want to see. Miranda and Ferdinand to be married off. And in this moment, in, in a way that's very reminiscent of uh, Rosalind in um, As You Like It, we have the the division between playwright, actor, and character becomes inextricably blurred. It's unclear who is saying farewell at this point as the character of Prospero, or actor playing Prospero, steps forward to ask the audience to applaud. We have, Now my charms are all overthrown, and what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. Now, tis true, I must be here confined by you or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and freeze all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Mm. And that idea, I mean, uh, obviously it's an exquisite poem, farewell in itself, but that idea of ending on the word free, and and of not only the character being freed, but the actor being freed from this uh, suspended moment of imagination that the audience and the characters participate in, in order to bring this theatrical event to life. The, the idea of giving over the power of the play to the audience who have to applaud in order to confirm that it worked, to kind of break the spell of theatre that's going on. And also that idea of this this release, this servitude, this theme of constraint that's been going on throughout the play, that it must finally be ended by the playwright, Shakespeare himself, saying, I need to reconnect with humanity. You know, I've been this playwright, I've been like uh, speaking with the muse, my Ariel, and, and constructing these worlds on, on stage. I need to return to humanity now. I need to kind of farewell this while, while I'm at the height of my power. Uh, and ultimately the 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 only way that an artist can be released from their obligation to their art is for the audience to confirm that mm. you know a, a moment was shared that a, an imaginative experience uh, was communicated and regarded i'm not sure how much i can say about it i mean yes it, it's very clear um, that it's there and, and it's clearly important it's not something I've, I've thought about nearly as much as I have about, as you say, the metaphysical side of the play. Um, when I have thought about this speech, one thing that's struck me is the allusion to mercy and being yes. freed from faults. Yes. Because that's more specific, of course, than simply, look, please applaud my work, tell me I've done a good job. Yeah. Um, he's actually, in some sense, begging pardon for something he's done. Now, I mean, to me, that makes sense in the context of, okay, Prospero, the character... Yes, I think he's done a great deal that he has to beg pardon for. If you look at it, if you look at Prospero's speech as you know, Shakespeare, as it were, inserting himself in, or the the playwright as a figure inserting himself in, then yeah, what has the playwright done? What what are, what are the playwright's faults? That need uh, there didn't need to be three parts for Henry. <laughs> Unnecessary. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, well, I mean, but jokes aside, I mean. 
something like that might make sense. I, I don't know whether you can as we pursue that line very far. I mean, I, I don't know whether you know, the reference to faults has to be, as it were, referred to the character rather than the figure of the playwright. Mm. You know, do you have any thoughts about that? I don't know. Well, I, I always read it like, again, I think I think what's wonderful about this, this epilogue and the, the themes of the kind of metatextual going on within the play is that they do all feed into one another, this idea of, magic and imagination and uh, intellectual pursuit all get kind of wonderfully bound together into the creative impulse of humanity, this longing to devote yourself to an artistry, whether it's creative artistry or intellectual artistry, this idea of binding yourself to a larger purpose, that you can lose your sense of yourself in that action. Mm. And, And I think that the creative impulse is being regarded as as both a beautiful but also a slightly alienating and destructive thing. And so this is an attempt to kind of acknowledge that and to bring it all together. It's not necessarily saying, uh, you know, I, I've screwed up, I've been a bad playwright or anything, but I think it is an acknowledgement that, you know, maybe there have been some mistakes or some faults, and, and part of that is the indulgence of the audience. He does this sometimes in his very wry, self-aware, ironic Shakespeare way. Uh, this idea of, uh, hey, if there's bits of the play you didn't like, that's cool. You know, if there are faults in it, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, you take from it what you will. Uh, in, enjoy what, what you like, because ultimately it's, it's not merely me as the creator spewing a product at you. It requires the audience to forgive the bits that they don't like and to embrace the parts that they do enjoy. And so part of any artistic pursuit requires empathy in itself that, that you know, we, you have to together create this artwork, not, not simply receive it passively, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's, that does make sense. Should we talk a little bit then? Uh, you have unique insight into the play, obviously, by, by virtue of performing it. Should we talk a little bit about Caliban? We, we've sort of yes, I know. S- yeah, skipped over him a bit. Because, of course, there are two, quote-unquote, slaves, at least, within this play. I, I would argue, again, going metatextually, that Shakespeare slash the playwright slash Prospero uh, wants to position himself as a bit of a slave to the audience as well. But certainly overtly uh, as far as the narrative is concerned there are two potential slaves which is Ariel Mm. the spirit of the air who's constrained by prosperous magic and there is Caliban the more base beastly creature that tried to rape Miranda and who is now confined by threat of punishment by Prospero what do you make of the two why have these two figures what do you think they represent I mean the fact that they're parallel figures is obviously important the first thing that comes to mind in comparing them is that Ariel makes it clear right from the outset what he wants more than anything else is his freedom, my liberty, as he says. Caliban, oddly enough, I don't think does want liberty. Um, what well, he, he wants... He wants his island. Well, perhaps, but he actually... Um, when he fastens on to um, Stefano and Tricolo as, as his deliverers... That's true, yes. um, It really does look as if what he's after is, you know, to put it provocatively, a new and better slavery. That's very um, true, yeah. He wants... I mean, it's, it's quite moving, really. I mean, he says, look, you know, I'll adore thee, I'll do this, I'll do this for thee, I'll... I'll I, this, oh, gosh, this line. I prithee be my god. Yeah. Heavens above. And, um, yeah, he, he wants a god. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, because for, for all of his bleating on about how much he wants his island and he loves Miranda, 
the second that he meets those guys or the second that he has a taste of their alcohol, yes. uh, he's willing to sell out both of those things. <laughs> take the island, take the yes. woman, I don't care. And okay, and then of course, yes, there is the, as you say, he's in certain obvious ways more base than Ariel. I think there are, obviously there's a pronounced tendency nowadays to try to interpret Caliban as sympathetically as possible. It's a little bit like the case with um, Shylock. And I think it is really important that we not go too far in that direction. It would be simply unfaithful to the text to do so. Having said that, he's a more sympathetic figure than Shylock, I would say. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he, he does regard himself as robbed, and we can see why he'd think that. It's hard to say, in a way, how accurate what Prospero says about him is as regards Miranda. I mean, Prospero says, um, I use thee filth as thou art with human care, etc., etc., until thou didst seek to violate the honour of my child. And all that Caliban says in response is, would it had been done, thou didst prevent me, I had peopled else this isle with Caliban. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes it sound as if, yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, and of course, that still leaves questions. I mean, all right, sexual desire isn't wicked necessarily, and this is the only woman anything like his own age that Caliban's ever met. What exactly do you expect? Uh, yeah, and and of course, as with so many other things, we never really find out what um, Miranda herself thought about all this. Um, oh, we do though, don't we? She she does say to Caliban that she was outraged by. What he did to her, and, and he laughed. Oh no, he, he he he! I know the speech you're talking about. I don't know whether he actually. I'll have to double check what it is that she says. Uh, here we go. Yes, this is the scene. Um, <clears throat> act one, scene two. This I, is this speech, by the way. I think some editors give to Prospero rather than to Miranda. But where is it? A borrowed slave, which any print of goodness will not take, being capable of all ill. I pitied thee, etc., etc. All she. It, it's rather abstract. Thy vile race, though thou didst learn, had that in it which good natures could not abide to be with. Mm. Therefore wast thou deservedly confined into this rock, who hadst deserved more than the prison. I mean, I think it's understandable that people sometimes assign this speech to Prospero. Um, at the very least, you could say, look, to some extent, she's simply repeating what her father would say. So, yeah, I, I, I would reiterate, I think it's not altogether clear what exactly happened um but still in the absence of more detailed evidence fine let's assume that yes he he sought to violate miranda's honor sought to rape her and was therefore punished um, i think it also perhaps undermines that the case that one might be uh, wanting to make for him as being more of a victim than, than perhaps we might perceive by the fact that he does trade her off to these new masters like trinculo and stefano he, he literally says you can have her like, yes, which, indeed. Hmm. You know, doesn't matter what she thinks. Like, you, you'll no, have of her. course, yes. Which hmm. is kind of, again, it's more conceptual than the physical rape that he is uh, accused of doing in the first place. But the, the same principle is there. He is hmm. just speaking for the use of her body in a very uncomfortable way. Yeah, no, that's that, that's absolutely true. I mean, I'm obviously partly having played the role. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I want to make him Mr. Pathetic <laughs> as I can. <laughs> but, but no, you're absolutely right. And, and, I mean, I should abide by my own remark we shouldn't try to make him too sympathetic just looking at that same scene this line wonderful line of caliban's you taught me language and my profit on it is i know how to curse it's it's a fantastic line and the Um, way that he curses too he curses them with because he curses everyone throughout the play but but his way of cursing isn't uh you know as we would imagine He, he he curses them by you know plagues of beetles and bats and like all, all these he, he uses the natural world around him obviously through the language that has been imparted to him by Miranda and, and Prospero but uh, this idea of him 
reappropriating their language to suit his personal experience. Mm. Uh, he, he knows the animals, he knows the, the vegetation, he knows the bogs and the, the, um, the winds and all these things that he has lived within. And yes. so that's how he curses people as opposed to, as we see, the, the king's men, the Sebastian and Antonio. Mm. Uh, they, they curse quite differently, you know, <laughs> when they're yes. yelling at the, oh, the shipmen uh, in, in the first scene, their, their curses are quite different indeed. And the rest of the line too, having said that, yes, my prophet on this, I know how to curse... Then the red plague rid you for learning me your language. Yeah. Um, that's his first curse in, in the play, in a sense. Yes, curse you for teaching me how to curse, or, or rather, for, for teaching me your language. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is one point where I'm sure contemporary um, you know, colonialism theorists and whatnot would would seize on absolutely. a line and say, look, yes, absolutely, this is the way. This is part of the dilemma for former subject peoples. Um, yeah. Maybe, I mean, in Australia. I, I, the, the first performance I ever saw of, of The Tempest, they had um, an Aboriginal actor playing Caliban. Great. And you think, well, okay, sure, there, there have been some efforts to retain Aboriginal languages and to teach them, but okay, plenty of Aboriginal people grow up learning English. And I expect it's true that, um, as um, Jermaine Greer said in a talk I once went to, look, you know, a, a lot of Aboriginal people are full of hatred, of real anger for, um, for non-Indigenous Australians. Not not all, of course, but but yeah, a, a widespread sentiment. I I find that quite believable, um, and a kind of helpless anger at look, you know, connected with the fact that okay, you came here and you did this, that, and the other, and there's no, there really is no going back. Um, one indication of which is that look, yeah, I'm speaking your language is the only language I've got, and yeah, the the paradox in you know, when it's the only language you know, cursing the person who taught it to you because they're also your oppressor. Or, or the descendant yeah. of oppressor or whatever is um, is of course very powerful and and again if you think about it it does convey the the impotence if you like of um, of, of certain kinds of subject peoples that yeah as a result of this you've left a permanent mark on me yeah I mean even if Caliban does succeed in killing Prospero and having Miranda married off to whatever yeah the language he speaks till the end of his life will be the language of his former oppressor. <sighs> Yeah, no, and absolutely. And again, I think that's what's so incredible about this play is it, it it's not like it just pays lip service to these ideas. It plays them out. It doesn't almost as an acknowledgement of the complexity and ugliness of, of the issues with which it's it's grappling. It doesn't find a, a pat conclusion. I, I think some people might dismiss Caliban's, you know, I'll... I'll learn to be better in future, uh, final line. But really, I don't think that the, the themes that have been evoked have been dealt with. They're, they're just sort of left to wander. Ariel wanted freedom and mm. took it, like, given given the opportunity, like, shot out of there immediately. Caliban want, wants his island back. And as you said, the impacts of the colonialization that, that he lived under will be felt forever. I mean, they seem to have corrupted him. They... Uh, Trinculo and Stefano come in and give him alcohol. It's like this culture clash will haunt all of them mm. uh, as the play goes onward. And there's no kind of pat, happy resolution. There's enough of a resolution for mm. you to uh, not consider this uh, an outright tragedy, which is why it fits in that weird category of, of um, romance play. But the complications, the implications linger on mm. afterward. Actually, on that subject too, just with the freedom point, I, I should... I should qualify what I said earlier because it came to me as you were talking. Um, at the end of the first scene he has with Stefano and Trinculo, Caliban, by this stage drunk, um, has this little song. 
which ends with the line, Ban, Ban, Caliban, has a new master, got a new man. But then, straight after that, freedom, high day, high day, freedom, freedom, high day, freedom. And that sums up the problem, in a way. Yes, he rejoices in having a new master, and then, in the same breath, rejoices in having or almost having freedom. I I suppose, yes, one might wonder, well, has has he reached the point where he's so used to servitude that um, the only freedom that he can imagine is the freedom of a better master? Can I ask about any performances or productions that you've seen of The Tempest, both uh, theatrical or filmic? Because I have a theory that this might be the unproducible play, but by virtue of its magic. I, I don't, I've never seen a production of it that I was fully satisfied with. I've, I've seen some that were stunning and beautiful and that uh, moved me in various ways, but I've never seen a... I don't want to say definitive because it's a mm. work of theatre. There is no definitive production, but um, I, I struggle to think of one that I was perfectly satisfied with. Have you seen... It's hard for me to answer that. I mean, the, the first production I saw of it, I saw um, before I read the play and got to know it well. It was many, many years ago. It was almost, gosh, yes, yes almost 25 years ago, with Barry Otto as Prospero, and as I said, the, the Aboriginal actor as Caliban. And um, one interesting choice in that, they had a, a woman playing Ariel. And look, yeah, so my recollection of that is I, I enjoyed it. I didn't have any complaints, but, but it was... I was probably too young anyway, but also I didn't know the play well at that point. And since getting to know the play well, I haven't, in fact, ever seen a complete performance of it. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of different performances or, or, again, I don't know whether to call Peter Greenway's um, Prospero's books a performance of it. I mean, it's a kind of free and um, typically Greenway in adaptation of it. I mean, the the BBC production with Michael Horden as Prospero, um, what I saw of that was good. I particularly thought Michael Horden was good. No, I, th- I did like that. That one was quite faithful. I, mm. uh, there was a version that I saw uh, quite recently, um, uh, recently, um, several years ago, but to me, relatively recently, of Bell, uh, oh, yeah. John Bell, mm. uh, playing Prospero. That, that that one was quite nice, fairly, fairly faithful, straightforward telling of the play. Very, very good. Apparently, Bell's final performance of, of Prospero, at least that's what I was given to understand. I'm not sure if that is true, but uh, it, mm. it was said to be, and I was glad to I was glad to see that, that performance. Did you see at all the Helen Mirren version? No. That one, I, I, this is slightly an aside, but I found that one so frustrating because it's beautiful. It visually, uh, it's quite quite sumptuous. It's, it's, it's lovely. This the film version with the gender-swapped uh, Prospero becomes Prospera. Uh, Helen Mirren is fantastic, but I feel like the film around her is not capable of creating an interesting enough uh, landscape for the performance that she's giving. They introduce this very fascinating concept that the reason that she might have been banished from uh, Milan was that she's a witch. You know, the, the suggestion is it's not just, oh, it's some old dude who's interested in the the supernatural she's a witch and therefore has to be banished so there's uh, this weird parallel gets drawn between her and Sycorax Mm. and uh but then the the production does nothing else with that yeah I mean it might be argued why does it need to but that was such a fascinating element to introduce that I would have loved if they'd just followed that a little further essentially she just turns into exact same sort of beats that you would see any other Prospero present after this really interesting thematic note that they just do nothing with. Well, if I could ask, I mean, this business about 
being uh, exiled for being a witch. Was there a suggestion then of what's become a fairly conventional, oh, looking at the Middle Ages, were so fearful of witches and this had something to do with misogyny and something along those lines? Or, or a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But then, the, but then that's what I mean, is uh, if you introduce that concept, so then at the end when they just, yeah, we're cool with you, even though you're clearly a witch, like, look mm. at you, you got magic flying out of you, uh, but we're cool with that now. It just... <laughs> exactly, it becomes no... unconvincing, yes. Yeah, mm. there, there, again, there was this really interesting component to that that could have been explored and, and therefore what fear do they have to overcome what preconceptions do they have to re-examine and in herself anyway as you can tell there, there are there are many ways that they could have taken that very interesting wrinkle in the the narrative that was introduced by a gender swap and they just didn't do any of it so mm. i will say and this is helpful to no one but possibly the closest that i saw to the image of the tempest that exists in my mind was actually a student production it, it was done by university students it was fantastic because they had enough regard for the text but that kind of arrogance of youth to experiment and try something strange with it that they they made these really fascinating choices their their representation of ariel was to actually have three incredibly gymnastic women playing the role of Ariel together so there, it was kind of Ariel moved across the stage as this sort of swirl of three female forms that, that uh, again it gave it this sort of wispy magical quality but it also allowed the slightly different personality traits of Ariel to be splintered across three different personalities so these three different actors would each speak so when when Ariel was a bit petulant and mm. was saying, "Hey, wh why do you have me prisoned here? Like I want to be free," that would be one character. And when when Ariel was sort of loving and playful and, and childish in a way, that would be a different character. And then there was this sort of romantic connotation that was placed in the third character that uh, maybe is a bit of an overreach, but I think can be. Yeah, yeah. Seen. Look, I I think that with Ariel, precisely because of the kind of being that Ariel is, it actually makes good sense to have different characters. I mean, mm. we know from Ariel's own account that he he appears as flashing lightning and as this, that, and the other. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, that's the point. He, in fact, it's tempting to uh, to suppose that Ariel has no fixed form. Yeah. He's just a sort of shapeshifter that could be this or could be that. And so, yeah, from that point of view, definitely. I think, I think there was a recent production in the UK, actually, in which... Ariel was a CGI projected mm. figure. I'm not sure how convincing that would be. <laughs> <laughs> no one needs to suffer through the Polar Express like uh, on stage, but a weird CGI form certainly allows you to get that that sense of it being a completely dissolved spiritual being. But I, I, w I will say about that amateur production, though, as phenomenal as, as it was in every other aspect, you can't get over the youth. Prospero is a, a character that mm. needs the age. And unfortunately, as good as the actor was, and, and from memory, he was actually fantastic. It was clearly a 19-year-old dude with a fake beard on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, he was great. His, his performance was, was fine. But um, there is just something about this role that, that needs that gravitas of age. And if you don't have it, it's very difficult. Um, were there any uh, final thoughts that you wanted to, to share on uh, what it is about The Tempest that you think uh, allows it to have this kind of uh, immortality in our imagination? There are all sorts of things I might say. I, I can't, I think, refrain from making a brief comment about the character of um, Gonzalo. I actually think that Gonzalo is a really important character. You know, he's someone who, we've talked about him just very briefly. He helped Prospero in the beginning, but he appears in The Tempest as 
a fairly, well, no, not fairly, as a very faithful servant mm. of um, the King of Naples. Much to the mockery of Antonio and Sebastian. That's right. And also he preserves his calm in the tempest, unlike any of the others, um, because, and it comes across quite clearly, he has a faith in providence. Mm. And towards the end, when you know, there's a, the kind of reconciliation scene takes place, um, he has, again, one of these infinite, beautiful lines with which this play is filled. I have oh, inly dear. wept. Yes. Oh, it's uh, a marvellous passage. This 201. Yes. I have inly wept, or should have spoke ere this... Look down, you gods, and on this couple drop a blessed crown. For it is you, gods, that is, who have ch- that have chalked the wo- forth the way which brought us hither. And on he goes. At this, that's just oh, hmm. brings one to tears in some ways. Reading this, was Milan thrust from Milan that his issue should become kings of Naples? Oh, rejoice beyond a common joy, and set it down with gold on lasting pillars. In one voyage did Claravel her husband find at Tunis, and Ferdinand her brother found a wife where he himself was lost, Prospero his dukedom in a poor isle, and all of us ourselves when no man was his own. Gorgeous no. writing. But the point is, you know, he, he expresses so well the, the magic that the audience, of course, can't quite take seriously, that, look, a happy ending, the gods have brought this about, all is reconciled, all is good, all is happy. And you think, look... I so want to agree with you, Gonzalo, but the fact is, no, this ratbag magician has brought this all about, and you're bloody lucky that he hasn't taken revenge on the others. And so, yes, I, I, but I, I mean, in answer to your earlier question, looking at what else makes this play memorable, I think it plays with the illusion of, of providence in the play. Mm. Um, and certainly by the end, I mean, yeah, the so much in this final scene does give the sense of a genuine reconciliation, genuine harmony, and um, and it is. It's very touching and beautiful. And at the same time, it's all fake in a certain way. Yeah. Is is there something in that, though? Because that, I've never... I'm going to be honest, I've never paid that much attention to Gonzalo at this point in, in the play, but as you read that, I'm struck by how impactful that is. Not Not so much that... Gonzalo is is maybe misconstruing the 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 quality of providence that that uh, is at work within the play, but but more that he is of the kind of disposition that that looks to find you know he's half glass half full kind of guy absolutely to, to put it in the most mm. base possible way. He's an optimist, uh, and and so this is a way of saying yeah we've all suffered we've all been through hardships, but. Through that suffering, we have come to a better state of being. Yes, it sucked that he lost his dukedom, but perhaps the wisdom from that experience uh, leads him to be in a better state of mind. And I think that actually works for the, for the narrative that, that suffering has to be part of our growth and our development. And he's saying it perhaps in, in slightly too wispy uh, an optimistic way, but that the play itself is communicating that in a way is like you will suffer and you will strain, but what you take from that suffering allows you to potentially be a better person. And maybe that's a commentary on Caliban as well, that mm-hmm. he has suffered so much. And yet I guess it depends on how much emphasis you want to give on his final lines of the play. But maybe his struggle is that he doesn't yet have the capacity to, to grow. And so the this scenario sets up uh, a series of events that allow characters, should they wish to, to take from their suffering lessons that will mm. hold them in good stead in the future. No? Oh, sure, but... Is that, that's a little <laughs> too pattern. No, no, but, but it's important that it's pat. I mean, I mean it, it's very important that Gonzalo... I mentioned earlier, I didn't 
say why I mention it, though. The fact that he is a faithful servant to his king, and at the same time, he's got no illusions about his king. I mean, he says, after Ariel has terrified the three guilty men, he actually says they are all racked with guilt. I th- yeah. I, that's not the exact line, but something like that. I mean, he recognises, yes, these people have acted really badly. Nonetheless, I'm going to keep on serving my king faithfully. No, he's a good man, he believes in providence, and yet he's not stupid. He, he isn't deluded. But then, I think, in a sense, the big question that his character raises is, look, at the end of the day, is he profoundly deluded? And his very name, um, it's been pointed out by a few people, the Italian gonzo means blockhead. So, is Gonzalo a blockhead? <laughs> wow. um, or, or not? And, yeah, as I say, we so want his vision to be true... And the play, at the same time, in a certain way, brings out all that's difficult in that vision. Because, as I say, you know, he, to put it very simply, he doesn't actually know what's going on. He's got a false idea of the details of what's been going on. You could argue maybe there's a higher providence guiding even Prospero, but anyway. I guess Gonzalo does have that willfully naive vision of what a perfect human society would be when he imagines, you know, there would be no government, there would That's be no right, money, yes. there would be, you know, mm. this idea of, of people just kind of living together almost as animals, you know, mm. and just kind of uh, free from civilization, uh, essentially living off nature's bounty, which, nice image, but as the characters both sarcastically and I think rationally point out, it doesn't really work as a society. It's mm. But maybe that's the message is that we have these ideals of what humanity can be, but you ultimately have to deal with the negative aspects of of the uh, human species, inclination, Mm. psyche, whatever. And that's what the, the play puts forward is that, part of growing, part of evolving, part of uh, developing your own inner psychology is to accept the ugliness in others and yourself and try to transform it magically into something more ideal. Mm. Again, too pat? Um, No, not too pat. It's just important to bear in mind that it is pat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's what we thought on this uh, very complex and exquisite play if you enjoyed this podcast then please do subscribe we have new episodes every other week and if you like what we're doing here please do give us a review on itunes those five star reviews really do help if you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback please do drop us a line as for today's discussion i want to thank dr jeremy bell for joining me my pleasure and we will be back next time with another campion conversations we hope that you can join us then This episode brought to you by Game Show Thinking Music. When you need to make staring into the middle distance with a perplexed look on your face look more dynamic. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.